0: unwrap your gift now but pay later right now at Pella windows and doors of wisconsin put no money down no payment and no interest for up to 18 months our elves work year-round installing in as little as a day offer ends december 31st visit pellawi.com
1: live from the annex wealth management studios at the avenue it's the jeff wagner show Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
2: Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. I, again, this is old school. If we if we peel back the curtain, I know the big voice guy says the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line, which is what we call it, but we, we do not have text services, Vince Toronto and it, it, it's really been interesting because the company we were using it's not they just went out of business yeah and and so so there is no more text line and apparently we're making arrangements to reinstitute it and will be at some point in time but we just don't know when and we use it as a tool
1: you use it differently than i do in the morning news you know sometimes we're looking for information we're looking for traffic tips other things so sometimes it's funny stuff and you in your format use it a little bit differently than i
2: do but i've certainly missed it oh yeah well and it's been really interesting because it's, it's certainly been a dramatic change i we 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 Started doing the text line. I want. I'm trying to think. It was probably like eight or nine years ago, and it, it really. I mean, it. it and, and it's a way a lot of people used to communicate with us. I mean, I don't know about you, but in any given show, a slow day will be four or five hundred texts, and a, a busy day will be will be more. And you know, people are interacting and commenting and saying all sorts of stuff but but yeah I, I use that as as a as something to play off on but so um it right now it we're old school so it's just it's, it's going back to this is talk radio 2005 man you got to call up on the phone and talk to us if you want to uh if you want to voice your opinions. i don't think you're going to get any complaints of more jeff wagner in your waning days <laughs> here jeff right we are, more there, of you is a good thing welcome my friend to the <laughs> show that soon does end absolutely all right and one of the things, oh, by the way, all right, so this is this is our visual aid thing. You can now, you know, in addition to listening to us, we, you know, we have, of course, we've had cameras for the last several months, and those are working very well. And you can go to WTMJ.com and click on the Watch Live button, or you can go to YouTube and put in WTMJ, and you will see this. But but here's my visual aid for for the day. All right, if you are watching now, there is this huge stack of things. This leads into my first commentary. Blood on their hands. And one of the things that I hope after I leave is that there's somebody in the media who picks up this effort to try to hold a system which is out of control accountable. And it's not necessarily easy, and it takes a little bit of work, but it is something that needs to be done. This huge stack of papers. Well, what this is, is a brief look at... The life of a guy named Elijahwan H. Shabazz, uh, born June 8th, 1997. So you do the math, he, he's 26 years old. All right. So why are we talking about him? Well, let's flash forward. Let's go back a couple of days. Let me take you back to Tuesday, November 29th. Well, that's a week ago today. Here's the way it was reported on Fox 6. A Milwaukee man um, uh, has been now criminally charged in connection to a police chase that ended in a crash involving a school bus on Tuesday, November 19th, happening near 76th and Capitol. Five people, including a three year old child, were hospitalized due to injuries. The driver who fled the police was arrested. He has now been identified, and according to the district attorney's office, the defendant is Elijah Shabaz, Shabazz, who's now facing a whole boatload of charges. Police say officers spotted a vehicle that Shabazz was driving that was wanted in a Chicago homicide. All right. So that's why. That's why they alert on this vehicle, this is a car that's wanted in a homicide. Don't know if Shabazz had anything to do with homicide. All he knows is he's driving this car that is wanted in connection with it. They tried to stop the car around 91st and Thurston, around 1145 in the morning. So this, this isn't 1145 at night. This is, you know, almost high noon. Of course, this is Milwaukee. So what happens? You never pull over, especially if you're driving a car that's wanted in a homicide in Chicago. You take off, lead the police on a high-speed chase. The fleeing vehicle crashed into a school bus near 76th and Capitol, causing the school bus to tip onto its side. It led to a secondary crash you know, after you smash into the school bus and it tips over that uh, involved several other vehicles. The 26 year old driver identified as Elijah Shabaz, ran off. Again, this is one of the you, you kind of wonder where the justice is in this world because you have these people that cause these massive crashes. You know, sometimes people get killed, and it seems like always the fleeing driver is the one that gets out of the car and is able to run away. All right, but that's what happened here. Ran away. He was take. He was ran off. Arrested. He was taken to the hospital with non-fatal injuries. Two passengers in his car, ages three and 26, were taken to the hospital as well. Police say the three-year-old was seriously hurt. The 26-year-old had non-fatal injuries. 71-year-old school bus driver. This is the car that tipped over after Shabazz drove into it, and a 30-year-old driver of a vehicle involved in a secondary crash were injured, um, but suffered non-fatal injuries. Okay. So I, when when this first happened. I raised the question, and we did not know who the defendant was, but I raised the question that I ask frequently, and, and unfortunately, the media just doesn't do this enough. I said, Who is the, the defendant in, in this case? Who is Elijah Wan H. Shabazz? Is this a deal where, because I mean, I'm just wondering again, is it you wake up one morning and you say, Okay, today's the day. I'm going to drive a car that's involved in a homicide in Chicago and I'm going to flee from the police at a high rate of speed and I'm going to slam into a school bus. I mean, it is, is, you plan this? Um, because see, for most of us, this, this would not happen. For most of us, if you're driving at 1145 this morning and the police go and they pull you over, what's going to happen? You're going to pull over, you're going to reach into your glove compartment, you're going to pull out your you know registration, you're going to reach into your wallet or your purse, you're going to pull out your driver's license, and you're going to interact with the police officer. I mean that, That's how most normal people behave. But of course, this is Milwaukee, where lots of people do not behave in that fashion. So I'm always curious as to who are these people that decide that they are going to run? Well, let's take a brief walk down the pathway of the life of Elijah Wan H. Shabazz. Now, as near as I can figure out, and again, the, the, the records are really, really convoluted because ah, there have been a lot of contacts with the police. Let me just say that. there Apparently, and we'll be able to tell this later, there was something that happened as a juvenile that had him adjudicated delinquent and treated as if it were a felony, even though he was a juvenile, which means he's not illegally allowed to possess firearms. So, But I don't know what that is because in Wisconsin, we protect juveniles. Heaven forbid that we should tell the general public that you have somebody who's 15 or 16 years old who's done something that they're going to get slapped on the wrist in juvenile court, whereas if they would have been brought into adult court, it would be a felony. So he did something, but I don't know what that is. All right, so let us turn to December 19th of 2018. He is charged with felony possession of narcotic drugs. All right, he is charged with a felony. He appears on December 20th of 2018, um, and he is <clears throat> released on a, a signature bond in the amount of $350. Okay, so they, they turn him loose on a signature bond. A signature bond, of course, means that you don't have to put up a dime. All you have to do is just promise that you will pay if you don't show up. Well, okay, he doesn't show up, <laughs> but but we'll get to that in a minute. So this is December 19th of 2018. Let us move to the next record, courtesy of the Wisconsin Circuit Court Access. He is charged on January 29th of 2019. He is charged with possession of a firearm by somebody adjudicated delinquent of a felony. So that would be whatever the juvenile thing was. He was not entitled to legally possess firearms. He has a firearm. He's charged with bail jumping, a felony which I assume the bail jumping is committing the crime while he's out on the signature bond. He's charged with carrying a concealed weapon, and he's charged with possession of THC. So these charges are filed, oh, briefly after he's been released on the signature bond, right, a month or two later. He comes into Milwaukee County Circuit Court. He's released. Would you like to guess what the bail was? I'll, I'll make it easy for you. He's given another signature bond of $1,000. So he's out on bail for a felony charge, and within a month or two, he's he's caught and charged with possession of a firearm by somebody who's not allowed to have a gun and carrying a concealed weapon and possession of marijuana, and he is immediately released again on a $1,000 signature bond. Okay, so let's keep these, these dates in mind. So now he's got two pending cases, and he's got a signature bond. All right. Then a little bit later on, you get other things. June 9th of 2020, he's charged with operating while suspended, no driver's license. Uh, same day, he's charged with speeding on a freeway, going over 30 miles an hour over the speed limit, august 12th of 2020 he's charged again with operating while suspended so he's out on bail for these things he doesn't have a valid driver's license he's driving 30 miles over the speed limit and he continues to drive these are not criminal cases nothing happens to him okay while he is still out on these signature bonds and these other cases are just hanging fire which raises the question of i mean at some point in time you're accused of committing a crime in 2018 Can we really not get this case adjudicated until, I don't know, two or three years later? So anyhow, April 3rd of 2021. All right. He is charged with possession with intent to deliver narcotics, possession of a firearm by an adjudicated delinquent, use of a dangerous weapon, bail jumping felony, Bail jumping felony, because these would be, I presume, the crimes. He's now committed crimes on these two signature bonds. He is brought into court April 5th of 2021. All right. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. You've got somebody who, going back to 2018, is accused of committing various felonies. Both of those cases are still hanging fire. First felony, 350 bucks, signature bond. Second, um, the second bond, let me make sure, it was $1,000. Again, signature bond. Now you're accused of, again, what I would describe as significant uh, crimes, drug dealing, use of a dangerous weapon, possession of a firearm by somebody who's not allowed. All right, and you're out on bail, signature bonds. So what happens? He appears April 5th of 2021 in Milwaukee County Circuit Court. They give him bail again. I swear I cannot make this up. And if you are watching on YouTube, look out because this might be the one that after all these years finally gets my head to explode. They set bail. Now, thankfully, it's not a signature bond. They set bail in the amount of $2,500. This is the third separate felony that this clown has accumulated over the course of a couple of years, and he's again released on released on twenty five hundred dollars cash bail, which he posts. Well, one thing leads to another, and without going through the nuances of the various uh, back and forth, ultimately he fails to show up in October of twenty twenty one. Surprise follows surprise, and he fails to show up. So he is essentially, at least as near as I can figure out, he's a fugitive on all these various charges dating back to October of 2021, and now what are we in November of 2023? Now there might have been some contact back and forth, but my, this is this is essentially what what's happened. He's now on the lam, and then that brings us to last Tuesday. We're driving the car. It's suspected involved in a homicide. We lead to the high-speed chase. We slam into the school bus. We flip that over. We cause all these secondary accidents. Now, my point is, this is a situation where, is, is it this guy's fault and here, again, it's, it's a miracle. It's a miracle there weren't kids on the school bus. It's a miracle that nobody was killed. You, know, you flip over a school bus, it's a miracle the 71-year-old school bus driver wasn't seriously injured in this. You know, you've got the three-year-old that was hurt, you know, uh, that was hurt but I think the three-year-old's going to survive. But, but here you have this complete and total failure of a system that you have somebody who is clearly dangerous, clearly a criminal, who is put back out on the street time and time again and and not apprehended. And then, you know, are we surprised that something like this happens? I mean it's just and and look and it's it's a systematic problem. You know, where 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 is a judge, where is a court commissioner that once this guy comes in on the third separate charge that releases him on a stupid low bail for twenty five hundred dollars? Where is the lack of supervision in a court system that fails to see that you have somebody that's got serious charges going back to 2018, and he's not held accountable? You know, there's no effort to try to rush this case. Let's get this thing through. Let's let these old charges just kind of hang on here. And again, I, I think I've got a pretty accurate example of what's going on. But there, there's all this interaction in between. But it, but It's years. It's years and you have somebody who should not be out on the street out on the street i again i have no idea what happened in the chicago thing but all i know is the guy is accused of leading the police on a high speed chase and damn near killing a whole bunch of people now here's the here's the highlight and this this really is the head exploding number now i've just kind of gone through this guy's criminal record he has been a terror um for several years and has remained unaccountable this This is the the last paragraph of the Fox 6 News story that they just ran. On Sunday, December 3rd, the court was advised by Shabazz's defense that there is reason to believe the defendant is not competent to proceed, online court records say. Shabazz remains in custody, thank God, and a doctor's report is due back on December 13th. He's not... So now, after essentially being unaccountable for crime after crime after crime, presumably dating back to when he was a juvenile. Now the thing is, well, you know, we want a competency examination. We don't think he's competent. Well, he's been competent enough to be committing, at least accused of committing crimes, without being held accountable for the last several years. He's been competent enough to jump bail and avoid being apprehended failing to show up for sentencings or court appearances or whatever. But now it's like, well, we don't think he's competent to, to stand trial. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's find he's not competent. Let's send him back out on the street. And next time, let, let's see if he really does end up killing somebody. But I don't necessarily blame him. I understand he's the bad actor. I blame a system that allows somebody, again, if you're looking at the visual aid here, allows somebody to accumulate page after page after page of separate cases, separate contacts with law enforcement on serious stuff. Look, I'm not counting the... Thirty miles an hour over the speed limit and repeatedly driving without a driver's license although I think that's a big deal too but I'm counting that the drug trafficking and the possession of firearms and the bail jumping and all of these things and of course you know now you get into a situation where well now he's he's charged with a whole variety of situations and a whole variety of crimes including recklessly endangering safety neglecting a child Fleeing, eluding police, hit and run involving injury and, of course, bail jumping, bail jumping, bail jumping, bail jumping. The problem is he shouldn't have been out on the street in the first place to jump bail because after he was accused of committing crimes the first time when he was out on a signature bond, they should have revoked his butt and gotten this case through the system. Surely. After he was caught the second time of committing a crime while out on signature bail, we shouldn't have said $2,500. Here, go you forth and go forth and, and again fail to show up. It's just amazing how people can manipulate the system and how the system allows itself to be manipulated. How does this case turn out? I don't know. But what I do know is this is not atypical. Unfortunately, this happens all the time. And the system does not get called out. It's bigger than one or two judges. It is a systematic problem, and you're never going to get crime under control in this community until you do something about it. Okay, got that off my chest. So earlier this morning, I'm I'm walking around the office, and Debbie Lazier, our, our ace traffic reporter, comes up and says, "Somebody called the newsroom from uh, this this place in Racine, Racine City I." and said that, you know, you were wrong when you talked about the Racine County Zoo being closed. And that was like fake news. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, well, no, you know, she said you talked about the Racine County Zoo being closed and she wanted to know that this wasn't incorrect. I said, no, no, I understood. I said, Debbie, I understood what you said. I just, I don't know what you're talking about because even as, as I get older, now, Aaron, you can attest to this, you've been producing the show. I, I don't. Know, I don't think the Racine County Zoo has come up as a topic on the pro. Now, maybe, maybe I just had one of these. Like, okay, I forgot what we did for a fifteen-minute segment. But I, I don't think that's happened, right? You're, you're, I'm pretty sure. And all the time I've been, I've been producing, uh, that's right, never. And come certainly out. not in the last day or two. So, um, and it's it's interesting. This is one thing I will not miss because. The- <laughs> I, I've always say, I mean, th- that's it. People will hear these things. And every once in a while, people say, well, I heard you talking about so-and-so, and, and it, it, it wasn't me. I mean, and I don't I don't know. And, and we have a lot of good talk radio in, in this market. And I, I'm very, very proud of, of the people that do talk radio. I think we have a vibrant market. Um, I, I, But I am – it is always kind of interesting because one of the things that ends up happening is you'll have people that – they, they heard stuff, and they, they think it's you. And you say, no, it wasn't. Then they'll – yes, it was. And I uh, – I, I just, I mean, trust me. I am perfectly capable of getting in enough trouble based on the things that I say, without you know having, having to take the fall for things that somebody else says. So, for any of you who are concerned about the Racine County Zoo, at least my information is it's not closing. I, I have no, I, I have no, I have no idea what the story was about. Originally, I was going to try to see if I could investigate it, but then it occurred to me. I didn't talk about it. I don't care. <laughs> it's like okay, but you know, good news for the Racine County Zoo. All right, I want to. I, I since I announced that I was was leaving, I have been seriously overwhelmed by the, the the very nice comments and the nice feedback, both you know that's people saying it on in public places and <clears throat> the emails and the texts that I've gotten, and I, I mean it a lot. So in many respects, it's kind of like being able to read your obituary without actually having to die. But I. I I got an, I want to just share a portion with you of an email that I received the other day from a from a lady and I, I won't go through the the beginning but she she essentially says, look, I, I really, this is the truth. I, I listened to you when you first started, and I've listened to you for for all these years, and i followed you, you know, from radio station to radio station. And then she goes on and said, I worked at a paper factory for 33 years, and while we weren't supposed to have radios, I would always sneak one in when the coast is clear. You got me through many long shifts and made my afternoons more enjoyable while educating me on many issues, which, by the way, the the two... And, the two greatest compliments you can give somebody who does what I do. I said for first is if you're in your car and you get to where you're going and you don't get out of your car, you sit in your driveway for a couple minutes and you listen to the end of the segment because you want to hear where the segment's going or you sit in the parking lot. That is the greatest compliment that, that you can pay because it, it means that we, we've attracted you. So so that's number one. The second the second greatest compliment is you snuck the radio in. I this I, I used to, I used to get all sorts of letters. Probably I still do from from postal workers, and you're not supposed to be like listening to like the radio and stuff in the in the postal vehicles while you're you're doing that, but but some postal workers do, and they share that with me. And I think you know when I get a note like this saying, "Hey, I know it was against the rules, but I brought it in anyways because I wanted to hear the show." That that's just a great compliment. But anyhow, here's what she says. Um, one of the great attributes you possess is the patience and ability to explain explain things you would make a really great teacher no I do not have the patience <laughs> for that um, you take the time to tell background and details of a story court case politics or breaking nose I always know you will have the whole story and then she goes on to say all sorts of nice things as well but I, I, I want to use that as a launching point for something that is going on in the Supreme Court today and I want to Do my best to explain why it is so significant and and do that in the simplest form imaginable and I'm going to do that right after the break don't go anywhere all right there is a case that is being argued in front of the Supreme Court which has huge ramifications although it's one of these where people I think just say okay your your eyes glaze over when you hear this so let me explain why this is important and try to make it as simple as possible as a general rule for taxes you pay taxes on income that you you realize that that you have that you've earned but normally earned income is when you realize it what does that mean let's say well okay let's say you you're working for a paycheck and every two weeks or twice a month or whatever your employer puts that money into your checking account. All right. That is when, when you get that paycheck, that's when you have realized the income. So in, in the most simple example, let's say you get two thousand dollars, you know, every two weeks. So your 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 salary, your your pay for the year would be let's say it's twenty four thousand dollars, well you or, or forty eight thousand dollars. You know every time you, you don't you don't pay taxes on that forty-eight thousand dollars, you pay taxes on the money as you earn it. So, if you leave your job, you know after only two weeks, you are not going to pay taxes on forty-eight thousand dollars. You are going to pay taxes on two thousand dollars, the income you realized. Similarly, the way it works with let's stocks and let's take a really really simple I- example. Let's forget about dividends and things like that. You buy you buy a share of stock at ten dollars and then you hold it, and the stock increases in in value, and it goes up and up and up. You don't pay tax every year on the increased value. If you bought it at 10, and after a year it's at 20, you don't pay, and the difference is $20 and $10, you don't pay tax on that $10 because you haven't realized the income when you sell it. So let's say you five, 10 years down the road, you sell that stock at $100. You paid ten dollars for it. You have realized ninety dollars in gain. That's when you pay taxes. You pay taxes on that that ninety dollar gain, but you only pay when when you sell it. And that's the way most things work in the tax code. All right. So all right, that that seems pretty simple. So what's going on in the Supreme Court? Well, back in 2018. The Trump administration and Congress changed how foreign profits for American countries were were taxed via a one-time levy on earnings from overseas subsidiaries. Stick with me. I know your your eyes are perhaps glazing over. All right. So here's, here's this couple. It's Charles and Kathleen Moore, who are a couple from Washington state. And what they did is they made an investment in this Indian company. They they put they put money in, and what happened is the company like took the money and reinvested it into the the, the company. They they haven't they haven't paid dividends. They, they haven't done anything. They've just taken the profit that the company made. Pro- company made profit, and instead of redistributing it, they ju- they put it into the company. Not an uncommon sort of thing. And so this couple they they, they haven't sold their investment. They've done nothing. They haven't realized any income from the investment. They're just waiting. Now, at some point in time, they're going to sell and they'll, they'll have earnings, but they haven't so far. Well, under this 2018 law, the government takes the position that we can come in and we can tax these people on the value of their position, their stock in the company, even though they haven't sold it. So they they've done them and they say, you owe us 14,000 bucks. The couple says, wait a second. You know, this. you're not allowed to do this. This violates the Constitution because, you know, you can only tax income, you know, after it's been realized. That's essentially, you know, what they argue. And, you know, they say, look, we're going to have to pay tax on this someday because someday we're going to cash out and we presumably, hopefully, will have a profit. But we haven't cashed out of this yet and you can't do this. To do this is unconstitutional. The very liberal Ninth Circuit said, no, no, the government can do this. The Supreme Court has taken the case, and it's kind of interesting because four justices of the U.S. Supreme Court wouldn't have taken this case, I don't think, if they thought that the Ninth Circuit ruling was correct. Now, why is this significant? Why do we care about in this couple, whether they got to pay $14,000 in taxes? Because one of the keys to Joe Biden's tax plan moving forward One of the keys to Elizabeth Warren's tax plan moving forward. One of the things that Bernie Sanders wants to do moving forward. One of the things the new left wants to do. One of the things the governor of California wants to do is they don't want to just tax you on your income. They want to impose a wealth tax, which taxes you on your assets, I mean, Biden's been very upfront about that. He just can't get it through Congress. Biden wants to come in and say, okay, rather than waiting for people to sell the stock, what I want, I want to identify the richest people in America, the wealthiest people in America, and I want them to have to pay on the estimated value of their wealth. I don't want to wait for Jeff Bezos to sell shares of stock and whatever. I want to be able to go in year after year and assess what – the value of his assets are, and I want to tax him on that value. Well, that's essentially what they're doing here and what the government's doing here. If the Supreme Court comes out with a ruling, and I don't know how they're going to decide. I I just know that I don't think they would have taken this case if they thought that the Ninth Circuit was correct. But if the Supreme Court comes in and says, no, you have to wait until somebody actually has has realized income so somebody actually has a gain you have to wait till they've sold that share of stock and actually collected the 90 bucks if if the supreme court says that which they might very well do that kills and will kill any attempts at wealth tax because it will essentially say what i think is really just common sense in the way the tax system is that you have to wait until before you can start taxing stuff you can't have the government come in and guess what your assets might be worth you have to wait until somebody actually cashes out you have to wait till somebody sells that house and and has a gain. you have to wait till somebody sells that stock and if they say that it will put to rest once and for all the question of whether or not the government could come in and start applying these various wealth taxes so that's why this is so huge In addition, depending on how they rule, there might be the possibility that Americans who have been taxed under similar sort of theories can come back and demand money back from the government. So this is a really, really significant case that's working its way through and is being argued today. Don't know exactly how it's going to turn out, but for everybody who thinks that you just shouldn't be able to tax people until they've actually realized income, um, people who think that, hey, we could just go out, let's stick it to those wealthy people, and we don't want to wait till they've actually got the money. We want to figure out, you know, how much their stuff is worth, and we want to start taxing it before they develop any income from it. Um, th- this This could put an end to that once and for all, to which I say, good. Back with more in just a minute. So, very glad to have you with us. All right. You know the saying, go woke, go broke. And I understand whenever I, I say that, there's people who get very offended that we mock the, the whole woke culture and things like that. And I'll get somebody that will send me an email saying, well, you know, what, what exactly do you mean by by going woke? You know, and i say, well, all right, I'll give you an example of that. You know, um Watosa deciding that they weren't going to let employees use the colors re- green and red. That's an example of going woke. That's just, I mean, I can give you all sorts of other ones, but, but that's that's a classic example of of going woke. But, okay, here's the whole idea of going woke, going broke. Now, for the last few years, one of the, the really hot things, and I, and I say hot in quotation marks, in investing has been ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And the whole concept behind this is, we don't want to take people's money and invest in companies that are successful necessarily. We want to make a statement, so we want to take people's money and, and we want to we want to invest in in companies that are good for the environment or they're they're good for you know they stand for social causes and things like that. As a matter of fact, there was this huge push because you had a number of lefties who wanted to allow money managers and things like that to start, again, using this ESG investing to put people's money to, to work. Now, for most people, all right, you, you, what what's your big goal of investing for your retirement? You want to make as much money as you possibly can. And if that means... Hey, there's a tobacco company that's, you know, doing real well, or there's a beer company that's doing real well, or, you know, this firearms company is doing real well. Well, I mean, you, you would typically want to invest in that, or at least if you decide you don't want to, you should have to specifically opt out of it. Well, here, here's the thing, the headline in the Wall Street Journal today, green investors were crushed. Now it's time to make money. Invest according to your political views, and you're unlikely to make money. Companies that appeal to left-wingers or to right-wingers might be good or bad investments, but the fact of being, on current politics, clean and union-friendly for the left or oily and gun-friendly for the right is neither here or there. What matters is their ability to make money and highly how highly they are valued. This has been rammed home for environmentally minded investors in the past year as a coordinated sell off in anything with green credentials crushed the idea of making money while doing good. So all all these I don't know, mutual funds or advisors who said we're going to be noble and, and here we're going to we're going to invest in this or that or the other. Well, what's happened is your your clients, meaning those of us who just invest, have been losing money hand over fist. Wall Street Journal calls it the big, bright, green misery machine. This year has been almost universally bad for clean investments. Worst two performers still in the S&P 500 are solar companies. Hydrogen stocks have fallen sharply. Um, Some of the big companies might not survive. Wind farm developers have been doing so badly they've pulled out from some contracts. Electric cars have disappointed, hitting startups and suppliers, pushing down the price of lithium ores. <clears throat> the list goes on and on and on. So I mean, the the lesson here is that if you bought into the, these green stocks knowingly, that that's fine. But you would have probably been better off just making a donation to charity because they're they're money losers. If if your advisor took it upon himself to decide, hey, I want to make a I want to make a statement. So I'm going to take Aaron's money, his hard earned money, and I'm going to put it into these green stocks because I we we want to be woke and now his investments have gone down, maybe you should be talking to a different advisor. A classic example. Look, and again, if you want to if you want to invest invest in, you know, environmentally sensitive stuff, go with God. That that's great. But if you think you're going to make money doing it, at least the last year pretty much demonstrates that's not going to be the case as long as we're on woke stuff another story in the Wall Street Journal today you know, we, we hear a lot about the climate things and, you know, we have to be really sensitive to climate change. And if you if you don't support like trying to force everybody into electric cars in the next 10 years, you don't love the planet, even though we, we don't have a power grid that can sustain that and people aren't ready to do it, all those different things. Well, there's an interesting story, again, which raises this issue that I've been raising for years and years. All right, it, and what it says is in this effort to try to get for example, the U.S. away from coal. all oh, coal is so, so bad. Well, it, it's, it's fine as far as it goes. But you have all these developing nations, whether, you know, there's places in South America or China or Vietnam or whatever, and India. And you know what? They're, they're heavy into coal. And they don't intend to change from coal because coal is cheap and they're more concerned. They they might give lip service to "Oh, We all love the planet. But they're they're continuing to, you know, build coal fire plants because their economies are developing. They need, you know, the entire they, they need the infrastructure. That's what they care about. Which raises the question, Mr. Biden, you know, you can try to force people into electric cars that they really don't want and aren't prepared to pay for. But at the same time, if you've got major countries across the world who are just increasing their dependence on coal, right, what are you really doing for the planet? Just asking, when we come back, if Israel does this, are they going too far? It's going to be an interesting topic and we will discuss
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's
2: WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Greg Matzik, I am legitimately confused about aspects of this NBA in-season tournament. You and me both. Okay, well, um, and, and if you don't know, okay, so, I mean, I, I get it. They, they had these games scheduled early in the year, and so the Bucks, you know, they they won all their games. Um, and those p- tournament games also count towards the Bucks' regular season schedule, which is important because the team, you know, that's home court advantage and things like that. So, I mean, I, I, I understand. Right, The game tonight against the Knicks, um, it, it was not scheduled, but it's, it's, again, it's one of these tournament things. So that counts towards the regular season. Correct?
3: Yeah, so if you, if you look at the NBA schedule for your favorite team, you'll see this week was all sort of blacked out. Everything was TBD. Because teams, over the last month, really since the season started, every Friday they have played one of these pool games to sort of qualify for the knockout round. And you may have seen some really loud and elaborate court designs right. at Pfizer Forum and across the NBA, and that was to signal to the viewer that this is a an in-season tournament game, though it does still count toward the regular season, 82-game schedule. So the Bucks won all of the games leading up to this point. So they qualified for what is now called... The knockout round, if you're familiar with soccer and the World right. Cup, you get to the knockout round, it's just that. You win and you advance. If you lose, you're done. So if the Bucks beat the Knicks tonight, they'll travel to Las Vegas for a semifinal matchup against the Indiana Pacers. Who Pacers last played night. last night and beat the Celtics. And there's a game in the Western Conference that will be played later tonight. Uh, I think it's the Lakers and Suns, and the winner of that game goes to Vegas as well. So on Thursday, you'll have two games to determine
2: the championship teams moving on to play in the championship game. And the, the games on Thursday also count towards the regular season schedule.
3: They do, and, and what's interesting about that is both games will be played in Vegas, and the first game will tip off at 4.30 Central Time. So it's very possible if the Bucks win tonight, that they will have a 4.30 Central Time game on Thursday against the Pacers in Las Vegas.
2: Okay, so again, but you got to get to 82 games somehow. So let's, just for the sake of argument, and I, I don't think it's going to happen, but worst-case scenario, Bucks lose tonight. They, they still, th- then that would mean the Knicks and the Pacers are going to go on and play Thursday. Wh- wh- who do the Bucks play, and when do you pick up that game?
3: Yeah, that's the question. And okay. that, that's still a TBD at this point. Okay. So, you know, teams that advance, obviously their schedule is sort of laid out in front of them sure. based upon the other teams that have won. Uh, losing teams may end up just playing each other. In Vegas, right? To just sort of be, you got two teams that are waiting to play something, right. some sort of game. But If the
2: Bucks lose tonight, they will play sometime this week. They'll probably make they it, will they still
3: hit. play a game. I think it'll be on Thursday. I think they'll still have a Thursday Saturday
2: schedule. Okay, but we don't know who. It, you know, they don't know who that would be. Correct. Interesting. Fun, isn't it? And in, and for all the other, I guess. Well, the other thing, just from a fundamental fairness perspective, if you advance in this tournament, you're playing better teams. You know, it, I mean, hear me out because it's kind of like. If you didn't, if you didn't make the, the the final eight, for example, you're going to be playing a game, but you're going to be assigned, and you're probably going to be playing a lesser team. Whereas the Bucks are playing better teams as they try to get the best record.
3: Yeah, I, I think that. Yes, I mean it was the Celtics, the Pacers, right. the Bucks, the Knicks. Those are four pretty good teams. The uh, Pacers score a ton of points. Lakers and Suns, okay, pretty good. Uh, maybe not the cream of the crop in the West, but but pretty good teams. And meanwhile, you've got 22 teams that didn't qualify for the knockout rounds at all. So those teams are set up this week to play two regular season games. And again, it was just a TBD because he didn't know if they were going to be in this tournament right. or not.
2: So it could be just anybody. It could be home games. could be away games. You just yep. don't know.
3: So it does lead to a little out-of-balance scheduling. Usually uh-huh. uh, the Bucks will play the Pacers, for example, four times throughout the regular right. season. Well, uh, in an instance, you might have a team... Play another five times or three times. That's not common in the NBA, but you got to make it work.
2: All in all, though, it seems to me this has been a success. I mean, the... the I think so. It s- seems like there's been excitement and stuff. And, you know, it is interesting because there's a pot of money. And for some of the star players, the argument was, well, they're not going to produce necessarily because... You know, okay, so they stand to get X amount of dollars. Well, that doesn't mean anything when you're making the kind of money they make. But they're apparently the, the pot is develop is divided among some of the the. It's divided everybody, everybody, including like the coaches and stuff. So they're sort of playing for their teammates and everybody else for whom maybe the money does make a little bit of difference.
3: For sure, I mean, there's loads of incentive here if you're the players. And yes, cash is king. So players like that if they can earn more money, especially some of the younger players on the team. And there's also a Vegas component. Players like the idea of going to Las Vegas.
2: What could possibly go wrong what there? What could huh? possibly go wrong? <laughs>
3: yeah, I'm guessing the Bucks would prefer to have the 4:30 game out in Vegas, and uh, if they lose, oh well, you know, hey, go have a time and. Uh, enjoy yourself before returning home and
2: resuming the season. Well, and of course, management would probably prefer the later game, yeah, exactly, just because it's you, know, you know, what what could possibly? Well, of course, Wagner's rule of life number four is nothing good happens outside a strip club at two o'clock in the morning, uh, no. and and you could certainly say nothing good ha- as nothing good really happens outside a strip club in Las Vegas at three in, the, in Las Vegas at three o'clock in the morning. So the teams
3: that lose the quarterfinals, uh, of which the Bucks are playing in, they're going to each play a regular season game. That game will be Friday against an opponent in their same conference. So uh the Bucks if they lose tonight, they'll still have a game this week. It won't be part of the tournament. It'll be against an Eastern Conference
2: opponent, but it would be Friday, not Thursday. Hmm. Interesting. Well, and it is interesting.
3: It's well, here to stay. It's well, not going away.
2: Well, no, and I mean I I also think it it takes what would have otherwise been I don't want to say meaningless, but, you know, I mean, just an ordinary game on a Tuesday night that in most cases people wouldn't necessarily care about. And now, you know, they, they did because they want to make the tournament or whatever. I mean, I think it adds it, it's kind of a fun little twist to keep things going in the midseason.
3: Yep. I think that's the goal for the NBA to make sure stars are playing, especially on Friday nights in November and early December. And on a case of a Tuesday night like this, yes, you, you'll see I think you'll see a pretty charged up crowd at Pfizer Forum tonight. Yeah. I, I think fans are getting it.
2: You know, I, I think the NBA's new rules for not allowing the the, the teams to sit stars, I, I think, has, has really worked out kind of well. Now, I mean, I understand it's an eighty-two game year season, and it, it's tough to expect people to play every, all, you know, all those eighty-two games. But just from a fan perspective, you know, there were we would go through periods of time where you just wouldn't know who was going to play on any given night. And I just thought, okay, if you've got all right, let's say you're, you're a fan in Salt Lake City or whatever, and the Bucks are coming one time to Salt Lake City, and you want to take your kid who's a huge Giannis fan. So you spend the stupid money, you know, to get the tickets, and then you find out that, well, you know, he, they're, they're going to sit him. I just think that that's, that creates a huge disappointment factor. So I think, you know, the NBA trying to encourage – Slash urge slash force to the extent possible. You know the stars to play unless they're injured or something. I think it's a good thing from the perspective of the fans.
3: Yeah, and NBA does not like to see the term load management yeah. next to a player who is sitting. He's tired, so he's just not going to play. Like that's right. not that doesn't fly well at the NBA the higher levels of well, the NBA. And it shouldn't. I mean, and again, right,
2: I, I understand you want to you want to. The playoffs are what it's all about, but again, for the fans in the stands, who, you know, you, you get you get to you can afford to take your kids to one Bucks game during the course of the year. You save up your money. This is the big Christmas gift or whatever. You know, we're going to go on a Tuesday night in in January. And it's one thing if players are hurt. It's just another thing that oh, uh, we're going to watch Le- LeBron James and, and Giannis play. Well, we're going to sit LeBron James. We're going to sit Giannis. I, I mean, how how can that not be anything but hugely disappointing to the, the fans and the kids?
3: That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So that's part of the reason why the NBA is doing what they're doing. But I'm with you. I think it's created a little more intrigue at a time where you're just sort of waiting to get through the holidays into the all-star break, and then the push is really on for the postseason. Uh, The the NBA does not want its season to, quote-unquote, begin at Christmas.
2: Yeah, interestingly enough. Okay, well, go Bucks. Hopefully they will win tonight. When we come back, is it something Israel should do? I will explain. We will discuss I've told a variation of this story before. One of my very good friends, one of my Sunday golfing buddies, his name's Mike. And Mike did two tours of duty in Vietnam. And he doesn't like to talk about it, but every once in a while he'll he'll open up when we, we discuss this. I have the world of respect for him. And one of one of the things he did, what he was Mike is is relatively compact. He's a small guy not i mean not freakishly tiny or anything like that but you know he, he he's not he's not 6-1 like i am you know 200 some pounds and one of his assignments in vietnam he was one of these guys that went into the tunnels you know like the viet cong and stuff they they built a whole network of tunnels and they they would that's how they'd spring surprises on the us military you know they they'd pop out of these these tunnels and use them for ambushes and stuff so when you know the military was on patrol they they'd find these tunnels and you know what would happen is people soldiers including my buddy mike would get assigned they'd have to go down into these these tunnels and you know you're you're looking to see what's down there and you know he he would talk about this a little bit and I, but you know he he they'd send him down with a pistol and a flashlight and and that's that's it. You don't, I mean, you don't, you're looking to see, you know, what's going on. You have no idea where you're going. You're under the ground. Um, and, you know, occasionally you find the bad guys in there. But I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, but this is, they, they built a, built this tunnel network and, and they use this. So we were talking about this the other day. One of the many problems that Israel faces in trying to eliminate Hamas in Gaza is the fact that for the last two decades, uh, Hamas... Has spent a lot of time building this network of tunnels under Gaza, and so what you have is you you have the ability, and, and under these these this labyrinthian you know network of tunnels, you know they've got weapons stored, they've got food stored, but they can they can use this again as the element of surprise. You can pop out of this tunnel and you can shoot at uh, Israeli Defense Force, you know Israeli soldiers, and then you can hide in the tunnels and you can flee. The reality is that if your goal is to eliminate Hamas fighters, at some point in time, you've got to force them out of these tunnels. Now, there, there's, there's a couple ways that you do it. Uh, you can, I mean, go down there with, with dogs but that, you know, you you got soldiers that are down there and, you know, you can put in trip wires and things like that. You know, you can put in bomb. It is it is a very, very dangerous thing because you don't know where you're going and the bad guys do. So I think a lot of people believe that bef- you, th- this, this war and the elimination of Hamas is never going to really occur until you get in and destroy the tunnels. Well, there, there's a lot of problems with that, including the fact that the various hostages that still remain, including the Americans, uh, the, the best intelligence says they're, they're, they're down there. They're in these tunnels, which is where they are being held. So the question becomes, how do you how, how do you destroy the tunnels? What are the risks, et cetera? I was talking to my buddy, Mike, a couple weeks ago, and, and I, I raised this question and we were kind of talking it through. And now I see it in The Wall Street Journal. My question was, what about flooding the tunnels? I mean, if you want to try to force Hamas out of these tunnels, well, what, what about flooding them? I mean, it certainly seems, at least to the soldiers, it, it's a lot safer then you know sending soldiers down there and not knowing whether they're gonna hit booby traps or whether they're gonna run into a bunch of Hamas fighters or or whatever so it was interesting today this is the story in the Wall Street Journal Israel weighs plan to flood Gaza tunnels with seawater Israel has assembled a system of large pumps it could use to flood Hamas's vast network of tunnels under the Gaza Strip with seawater a tactic that could destroy the tunnels and drive the fighters from their underground refuge. All right. Uh, Israeli Defense Forces finished assembling large seawater pumps roughly one mile north of a refugee camp around the middle of last month. Each of the five pumps can draw water from the Mediterranean Sea and move thousands of cubic meters of water per hour into the tunnels. And it says that they estimate that they could probably flood them within a, a couple of Weeks. Israel. Fir- the story continues. Israel first informed the U.S. of the option early last month, prompting prompting a discussion weighing its feasibility, feasibility and effect on the environment against the military value of disabling the tunnels. Sentiment inside the U.S. was mixed. Some officials said the U.S. supports disabling tunnels and said there wasn't necessarily any opposition to the plan. Some U.S. officials, though, privately expressed concern about. The plan. Israelis have identified about 800 tunnels so far, although they acknowledge the network is bigger than that. The weeks long process of flooding the tunnels would enable Hamas fighters and potentially hostages to move out. Um, but the problem is, first of all, I mean, well, there's lots of problems with this, including the fact that, you know, you've got these hostages down there. So what if what if Hamas decides, okay, we're, we're not taking these hostages out. We're just going to let them drown if you flood the tunnels. There's people that are concerned that if you flood these tunnels with seawater, what you're going to do is have an environmental catastrophe, which essentially it'll seep in, it'll destroy the groundwater, and then you're going to have a huge problem with the, the fresh water that's there, and it could be an environmental thing. Uh, part of the concern they say is, well if you flood these these underground tunnels with seawater, what you could do is you could cause the buildings that are you could degrade the, the substructure and you could cause the buildings to collapse. Nobody exactly knows what would happen. but it's one of the things that Israel is thinking because I think their consideration their conclusion is if we flood these tunnels. We make them unusable and we force Hamas out of them. All right. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Look, th- this is this is a mess. I was just looking at one of these stories that's out there, and, and Israel is saying that for for every two civilians that are killed, there's one Hamas fighter that was killed. And they're arguing, okay, this is a good ratio. And, and it, it might be, but that's only when you're talking about numbers. I mean, you, you have you know, civilians that are dying because of the way Hamas has set this up, because they've got... You know, their fighters are, they use the civilians as human shields and things like this. So urban warfare is necessarily going to be extremely messy and you're going to have a lot of innocents that get caught up in this. So there's no good way to eliminate, you know, Hamas. There's no good way to do it. But this is at least one of the ideas because the tunnels are one of the huge problems that they have. How do you destroy the tunnels? How do you get Hamas out of the tunnels? It's not a perfect solution, but what about flooding the tunnels? 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, there's no good solution to this mess that is going on in, in the Middle East. Part of the problem the Israeli military has in trying to root out Hamas terrorists is that they have been... And this is a whole nother story. I mean, they've been allowed for the last 20 years to build this intricate network of, of tunnels under the Gaza Strip, and these are tunnels that they are using to keep hostages, store munitions, store food, um, spring out at various locations and ambush Israeli soldiers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Going through tunnels is an incredibly dangerous type of thing to do because you go down in this tunnel. You don't know where you're going. If you're a soldier, you don't know if you turn a particular corner, whether you're going to find a booby trap, whether you're going to find, you know, soldiers. It, it's just a mess. And so, one of the ideas that's being floated is, no pun intended, that they, they, they apparently set up a whole bunch of pumps, and they're they, they think that they could flood these tunnels out in the space of, I don't know, a week or two which would deprive Hamas, it would actually essentially force Hamas out of the tunnels or out of most of the tunnels. So the question is, do you do this? 855 616 Let's start with Mike in mm-hmm. Illinois. Mike, you're first. Hello.
4: Good afternoon, Jeff. How are
2: you? Good. What do you think?
4: I wish they would have thought of this idea before they took hostages, because as long as there's hostages in those tunnels, I don't think you can do it, because that was the main objective other than eradicating Hamas. Um, about this war to get the hostages back. So I just don't see humanely how you could do that. I certainly wouldn't have much sympathy for any um, Hamas uh, terrorist, but uh, as long as the hostages are down there, I just don't see how you can justify it.
2: Well, I guess, but what I mean, let, let's talk about the alternative. So you've got the hostages that are down there, uh, and let, let's say you've got 15 hostages that are in a room, just for the sake of argument, and the Israeli military... Stumbles is, is coming down, you know, one of these tunnels. Um, do, do you think the Hamas folks aren't gonna aren't gonna kill these people anyways as they're getting ready to fight the Israeli troops? That's a good point. I didn't think about that. Um, you're right. I mean,
4: they are. They probably do not have much humanity towards these people. They are just using them, of course. Yeah. Um, which is why they took the hostages in the first yep. place. So, yeah, you have a point there. That's a that's a tough thing. Um, no, you know, it is tough. Yeah, that some of the um, family members of people that had been hostages had met with Netanyahu. And I heard a story that they came out of there unhappy after they met with him. I don't know what that was all about. Um, but either way, it is a very tough situation.
2: Yeah, it is, Mike. Thanks for calling. right, and, and, I mean, there's no good good answer here. And, and you're exactly right. The reason, the reason that these animals are holding, you know, the, the hostages is because they want to, you know, hamper— they, they want to hamper you know Israel's efforts I mean that's why you you take the hostages in the first place the question be- becomes if if you don't flood the tunnels all right okay what what is the alternative and and the problem with urban warfare is that you know do, do you do you bomb hospitals I mean what 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 do you do how do you accomplish this objective when you know that that Hamas is down in those various tunnels I mean that's that's what the problem that you face is. And it's this balancing. And I appreciate that you've got the whole issue with the hostages. But if the alternative is, gee, in order to continue these battles with Hamas, you know, we, we've we got to do this urban warfare where you have two or three or four civilians that are going to be killed for every Hamas fighter. How how do you balance that out? I mean, it seems to me that you have to force an end to this as quickly as you possibly can. And unfortunately, there's no way this gets done without the loss of, of human life, whether it's the soldiers, whether it's the hostages, whether it's the civilians who have no place to go and are trapped in Gaza. I mean, there is, there's no good alternative to this. James on the south side. James you're on WTMJ, hello.
1: Yes, uh, Jeff. Uh, why not uh, use uh, like these robots that the police use and everybody else uses for tunnels and stuff like that, uh, these small-type small robots or, or maybe bigger ones? And 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 come from various ends in the tunnels and stuff like that. It gives you the you don't have to send people on down it it'll or water in that and you can uh, find where the booby traps are or where where stuff goes and everything else. Come from one end and come from the other and start to flushing them out that way.
2: Well, I mean, James, thanks for the call. I mean, my, my understanding, and again, I, I don't claim to be an any sort of expert on urban warfare and things of the like, but my understanding is the drones, we'll, we'll say like drones, it, that's that's extremely limited as, as to what you can do. In addition, you, you've got to destroy the tunnels. I mean, that, that's kind of the bottom line, because just going into a tunnel and saying, okay, it's clear at the moment, doesn't mean it's going to be clear two hours from now. So you, you have to systematically you know, root these people out and destroy it. My, my understanding is dogs are one of the most effective things that they use to go in there, but it's a slow, it is a tedious process that, you know, puts soldiers' lives at risk as well. I, I mean, I don't I don't have all the answers, and I don't claim to have all the answers, and, and I understand that there are risks to flooding the, these tunnels, and, which does raise... You know, I mean, there's going to be time to discuss this stuff after, after, you know, the the battle, the war is over, and the war will end at some point in time. But, I mean, one of the big questions that I've had since this whole thing started is – why was it that we, Israel, the United States, why was it that we allowed the, these tunnels to be built? You knew, they knew this was going on, and this was part of this idea that you can appease Hamas, and, you know, we can try to negotiate with these people, and they had 20 years to build this network of tunnels, knowing this was precisely what was going to happen. I mean, I think, I think at some point in time, don't don't discount this idea, because there is there is a balancing, and there's also a question of, you know, will will this work, you know, what's you know how some of the tunnels are reinforced, some are just dug in the ground, You know what the effect of it's going to to, to be. Let's talk to um, Dennis on the south side. Dennis, you're on WTMJ. Hello.
1: Hey, thanks for taking my call today. I sure. appreciate it. You will be missed, by the way.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate <laughs> that. That's kind of you.
1: <laughs> okay. Hey, I'm going to ramble just a little bit, and, and I hope you'll let me, because I – I'm thinking about this, you know, not just today when you brought up the topic, but, you know, during the course of all this, you know, going on. And I'm thinking, like, back in World War II, we were up against tunnels with the Japanese, mm-hmm. you know, Vietnam. We were up against tunnels, you know, with the Viet Cong, and, yep. and all the trouble they had trying to root people out, how difficult it was. And then, then something popped into my mind with one of your callers saying, yeah, well, you don't want to go in there because, you know, they're going to just kill the hostages, and i know you're a big movie buff <laughs> i thought of of all things um the demolition man so that's just along with right. snipes and how you know still gets accused of of killing the the hostages going after snipes in the beginning of the movie and then toward the end of the movie you find out you no, know, snipes had already killed all the hostages if right. they're already all dead yeah and and i'm thinking to myself you know the, we, maybe Hamas you know, is, is, is playing these people and they're playing everybody, and God forbid that they're already all dead. But on the other side of the coin, I'm thinking, you know, we dropped the bomb in World War II to be able to stop the killing of Americans and Japanese, and everybody wants to, wants the Israelis to stop bombing, to kill, you know, stop killing the innocent people. Um, maybe this is the best bad mm. idea they've got.
2: Well, oh, you right. Know, oh, and oh and you're talking Korea, about flooding the tunnels. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, know. Dennis, thanks for the call. I mean, I, it, look, there's, there's no good alternative. And I guess at at some point, and am I advocating it? No, but I'm thinking it, it was actually something that popped into my mind a few weeks ago. Why don't you flood these tunnels? If the tunnels are where the bad guys, the terrorists are hiding, at, at some point in time, you've got to get people out of that. And so you, you start to do, it's kind of a do-the-math thing, and I don't mean to be harsh on this, but it is, it's kind of a do-the-math thing. Okay, well, what we can do, we, we can we can send missiles, we can start blowing stuff up, but the problem is when you blow stuff up, yes, you will kill terrorists, but you're also going to kill civilians who are stuck in the area because of the way Hamas has done this. That, that's just the reality. Yes, we can, you know, send continue to send soldiers into these tunnels, but then, you know, soldiers are going to die because they're going to be booby-trapped, or there's going to be people, you know, hiding, waiting for them. Hamas has that t- tactical advantage you've got the overlay of the the hostages and i appreciate that that is that's always a difficult situation you want to try to get the hostages back alive hopefully they all are still uh, alive and you want to get them back but at at some point in time all right what what's What's the cost? If, if Israel says and they've already said, hey, we're not we're not giving this up. I mean, we're, we're not just going to surrender and allow Hamas to continue to you know, operate and do you know, launch another October 7th attack. If, if the commitment is we got to eliminate this at some point in time, you've got a whole bunch, like you were saying, Dennis, of really bad choices. I, I get it. Bad choices that are out there. But if you're going to bring this to an end, you've got to make those bad choices. I mean, we were talking about World War II, and I understand there's a lot of revisionist history that's out there. Some people very, very hostile at at Harry Truman for, you know, dropping uh, atomic bombs on Japan. But the, the alternative he faced was a ground invasion of the island of Japan, which would have Again, been the same sort of thing. It would have been urban warfare. It would have led to an enormous number of deaths of American soldiers. It would have led to an enormous number of deaths of Japanese civilians. So you you do this. It's not. It's not a good choice. There's no good choices when it comes to this stuff. But. In in many respects, and and innocence always get taken along with it. And don't send me an email saying, well, Jeff, how would you feel if, you know, one of your loved ones was a hostage? I would want to do everything I could to get that loved one back. I understand that. But sometimes you have to have that bigger picture of, all right, you got to think not just of the hostages, but you have to think of everybody that's out there. And, yes, you will be putting the risk of, you know, 100, 200 hostages at at life at, at risk. But if you don't do something you're putting, you know, the lives of tens of thousands of people at risk. Not a good choice, but something that Israel is apparently considering. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner.
0: The storms till the sun shines again When your compass is spinning And you're lost all the way Like a leaf in the wind Friend, hear me when I say Bubbles
4: up they will point
2: you towards home no That's one the goodbye songs that how Jimmy Buffett you, one of the last songs um, he, he did before he passed away bubbles up um, it's, it's um it, it's tough to listen to that without kind of tearing up a little bit all right I, I launch into this topic and I need to do a disclaimer um for all my friends out there who might hear themselves in this story I do not have you in mind <laughs> I, I just don't it's it, it's although this could affect you but I, I, I don't there, it, the story in Business Insider caught my attention. And it, it's an interesting thing. It's it's kind of the, the millennials versus the boomers. And the millennials put off having children for a long time. So I'm generalizing. So boomers, us boomers, are, are now the oldest grandparents ever. Okay? So the story in Business Insider focuses on it these millennials and they're they're talking to like this 33 year old woman who's got young kids and she said well when i was growing up if mom and dad ran out of town we were at grandma's grandma wasn't going anywhere and we already knew that but the woman says she's got three kids There's no guarantee that her parents or her in-laws would do the same for their grandkids, certainly not at the snap of a finger. We have to make sure we're asking months in advance, adding their own travel plans often have to be factored in. Heaven forbid, mom and dad, grandma and dad might want to have this whole life and they might not be available, you know, to just drop everything and babysit for the, the kids Hilberg's situation, that's her name, appears to be typical of a new generational dynamic in which boomers have become too busy to help raising the growing families of their millennial children. Um, and then, you know, it goes on to talk about how, well, what that you have the, these, these kids, millennials, who have the young children, and what they think is that their parents, heaven forbid, my parents should want to travel Heaven forbid my parents should relocate to Florida or Arizona. Um, they should be around, going to my kids, taking my kids to soccer games, and they should be around babysitting when I want to travel with my husband. Um, uh, the story goes on. You know, Boomers blame Millennials. Um, the woman says, "Look, her, her father, her father retired." Um, he lived in California. He retired to a luxury community in Mexico. Uh, the, the daughter says he feels like this is the right choice, and it's a truly a fit for how he wants to spend the rest of his life. But it's a choice that hasn't made her or her sisters happy, especially because they envisioned having the grandfather around to help raise the kids. <laughs> you know, so dad has decided, I raised my kids. And now in however much time God leaves to me, you know, I, I wanna, I wanna kinda go live my life. And it's not that I don't love my grandkids and stuff, but here, I'm, I'm gonna live my life. And if that means that, you know, we can get together on holidays and things like that, but if that means that I'm not around to, to babysit for my kids every time they wanna go somewhere for dinner on a Friday and Saturday, um, tough. <laughs> All right. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, the reason, and this is kind of difficult, is look, I, I have I have lots of friends who are grandparents and who spend lots of time babysitting for their grandchildren and absolutely, absolutely love it. So, you know, their kids can go off on trips or their kids can do, you know, whatever. And, and, and that, that's fine. It's a choice that they make. I guess... I'm interested about the flip side because this story is definitely you have some of these kids, the millennials, who are upset that the boomer parents have decided that, you know, OK, maybe, you know, we, we love our grandkids, you know, and, and we'll be around to help them. But you know what? You know, we, we're not going to live our life, you know, as, as babysitters or raising your kids while we go off, you know, while, while you go off and do stuff. Now, again, it's, it, it varies from family dynamic to family dynamic. And it's always one thing, you know, your kid's in trouble and you need, you know, the, the babysitter and the emergency thing. But this, this attitude is a lot of the millennials have this attitude that, hey, mom and dad, they, they should be there. And if I want to go out on a Friday night, mom and dad should, should do that. Or, you know, mom and dad, how dare you? Decide that you're going to relocate to Florida. Don't you understand that I might need somebody to take the 10-year-old to a soccer game or something like that? 855-616-1620. All right, grandparents. And again, if it's something you decide to do, that's great. But, I mean, what do you owe your kids? I mean, do you owe... Your kids that, okay, I'm going to locate near my grandchildren and I'm going to be around. I'm going to be the babysitter for them, et cetera, et cetera. So my kids can go off and live their, their best life or so I can make it easy for them. Or is it perfectly reasonable to say, Hey, I love the kids and you know, we'll, we'll help out wherever we can. But you know what? You know, we we, your dream has always been to go to Arizona for like six months and, and we're going to Arizona for six months. 855-616-1620. We discuss. Okay, so the story I'm looking at, here, here's another example. They've got this 30-something-year-old mom who says, okay, they have three kids, 11, 5, and 3. And her, her divorced mother, who's 61, mom, mom always dropped everything and, and would babysit for the kids whenever my husband and I wanted to travel. So mom just got remarried. Okay, so she says, this is the, 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 the millennial, calls up mom and says, well, you know, I, I want to go to Costa Rica with some friends, so can you fly in and, and babysit? And and mom says no. <laughs> mom says I, I just I just got remarried and I, I don't want to leave my my new husband. Sorry. And then mom will goes on to say, and and by the way, um, you know, next summer, you know, we're we're going to Europe, so I, I'm not going to be around to watch her. And and this this the, the mom the mom and grandma mom is going. I I just I can't believe that that she doesn't want to babysit. And it's not a question of not wanting to babysit. It's a question of I'm living my own life. Jessica in West Bend. Jessica, you're on WTMJ.
0: Hi, I just wanted to say that I may be, be the only millennial that feels this way, but I think grandparents raising their grandchildren is an epidemic. I think the kids are out of control. I think boomer mothers raise their millennial daughters to think that they have to have a job in order to be successful, and now they're paying the price for it. Grandparents have no business doing this. They shouldn't have to discipline. They should get to be grandparents.
2: Well, I mean, Jessica, I don't want to be over. Look, I don't want to be overly harsh about it. And like I say, I, I have, I have, I have several friends. Who, who love and embrace the role of being grandparents and they like helping out their kids. And the, so they'll they have their, their schedules and they'll watch the the grandkids once a day or whatever. Or if something comes up, they're they're very willing to do that. But it's a choice that they end up making as opposed to. You know, all right, as opposed to, like, this this obligation that they should have. I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine the scenario of this kind of expectation that, that you have that, oh, well, if I want to go to Costa Rica, of course, Grandma, Grandpa, you should drop whatever you're doing, and you should watch the kids. Where does that come from? Uh, Sue in Elkhart Lake. Sue, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
0: Hi, good afternoon.
4: What do you
2: um, think?
0: I'm just calling about the grandparent thing. Um, I have grandchildren that are seven months old, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and they're all my daughters who, she's 24 years old, and um, yeah, sometimes she tries to guilt trip me into uh, (laughs) watching my grandkids, and we have a seasonal campsite in Montello that we go to every weekend during the summer months, and she'll be like, oh, can't you stay home this weekend and let the older girls sleep over or take them with you to the camper?
2: Yeah, yeah. And
0: being the nice mimi that I am, I just take them with us.
2: Right, but I mean, it, it's this expectation that you're you're going to be around to be the the babysitter all the time. And it's and it, it's, I mean, it's one thing to help out in emergency situations, but th- this idea that oh, you know, what? Why should you and your husband? Why should you guys go and live your life? I mean, you you should be around to babysit for the grandparents for the grandchildren. I, I just I guess. It's one thing if you want to do it or you don't have other plans, but it's this other thing if there's this expectation that you should, that you have to do that.
0: Oh, I agree. I told her, I was telling her repeatedly, I'm like, we raised our kids. Now it's our time to enjoy life and do what we want to do. You know, you made these children. Now you have to watch them.
2: (laughs) Thanks thanks for the call, Sue. And and look, and I, I appreciate you want to be part of your, your kid's life and they're there 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 will maybe there's a point in time in people's lives where okay look look i the, the kids are getting started and, and so yeah I'll, I'll do whatever i can to to help out I, and I mean i i understand that and it's different for every set of parents my my, my wife and me to a lesser extent want to be very very actively involved in you know her grandchildren's lives and and that that that's one thing but does that mean oh hey you know don't don't go down to florida and spend some time down there i mean that's that's it's because you know you might have to now that our our Fran's grandkids are all, you know, college or high school age. But, I mean, this idea that, you know, you you have to take care of that. I mean, look, I'm going to stand up for boomers here for a minute because the truth of the matter is, you know, between kids, between dealing with our aging parents – And if you haven't done that, um, trust me, you know, it's that that's a that's a challenge. So you've got I mean I have friends that are dealing with parents who are in their 90s, for goodness sakes. And, you know, they're they're taking they're taking care of their parents. Now, this expectation that, you know, you've raised your kids, but you're also got to take care of your kids, your grandkids. It's that's a lot to put on people. Just saying back with much more in just a minute.
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
2: I was just kidding, Wyatt. He said, well, it's going to be hot. You know, 50, It's going to be in fifties. 50s. Well, and, and I said, I wouldn't exactly describe 50 as being high. He said, well, it's December. Well, it, 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 right, that would be seasonably seasonably comfortable, but I wouldn't use the word hot and 50 degrees in the same sentence, but that's, that's okay. It's going to be nicer. I, all right, this is, you know, schadenfreude is, is the, the German concept of taking pleasure in the pain of others, and it's just, while it's something you shouldn't be proud of, it's something that is just absolutely human nature, and, and there, there is a larger lesson in this, the, and it comes from the world of sports. The New York Jets football team is finding out firsthand the the problem of getting drawn into the the cult of personality, and you're, you're seeing that. So, you know, Aaron Rodgers makes his much much waited for move to the New York Jets. New York Jets go on HBO's Hard Knocks. They're going to be the team. they Aaron Rodgers is going to put them in the Super Bowl. But of course, because Aaron Rodgers, even at the age of 39 or now, I think he's 40. I think he turned 40 over the weekend. They, they, they forget the fact that you know, football. You know, all all it takes is is one hit, and you know the, the season can change dramatically. And when you're dealing with somebody who's 39 or 40 years old, there's a lot of tread on those tires. That's just kind of the reality. But in an effort to make Aaron Rodgers happy, the Jets go out and sign seven or eight of his buddies, so they might, so he's going to feel comfortable. So the, essentially, you know, almost 10% of the Jets roster becomes Packers-like cast-offs. So what's happened to them? We always know the story about Aaron Rodgers. He gets four plays into the year, and, and he's, he's out. So the Packers, the Jets go out and sign Alan Lazard. Um, they pay him 44 million bucks. And everybody in the NFL rolled their eyes and said, well, Alan Lazard is a serviceable second or third string receiver, third receiver. But he's not a $44 million guy. But the, the deal was relationship with Rodgers. OK, so th- this was it. We wanted to give Aaron peace of mind. So they, they sign Alan Lazard. And so far this year, he's having his worst year to date. 10 games, 20 receptions, 41 targets, 290 yards, one touchdown. He was a healthy scratch two weeks ago in the loss. So he's not even able to make the team, and they're paying him $44 million. Randall Cobb, and and look, Randall Cobb had a wonderful career for the Packers, but the, the only reason he's been playing for the last couple of years is his Aaron Rodgers' buddy. So the Jets go out, they sign him to a deal because we want Aaron Rodgers to be happy, and Cobb, he hasn't had a catch since October first. And yeah, since October first, he's been on the inactive list for games three times after the over the past month. He's missed another game with a soul shoulder injury, and since coming back with a soldier injury, shoulder injury injury, he's been he's not able to make the team. He's been a healthy scratch. They're paying him money. Tim Boyle. All right, Tim Boyle, the Jets' backup. They've signed him, former Packer, as the backup quarterback. You know he was one of Rogers' buddies. He uh, they cut him today. You know he after they they played him two games. Whatever the question was, Boyle wasn't the answer, so they they cut him. Billy Turner, offensive tackle. He played for the Packers for three years. They signed him to a big deal. He can't make the team. 30 year old guard is buried on the offensive line depth chart, inactive for two of the team's last three games. So he can't make it. Adrian Amos, who was played for the Packers for four years. The, the Packers let him go. The Jets hire him. One year deal worth $4 million. All right. Rogers was all in favor of this. They cut Adrian Amos today. So it, it's just, it's like they're not playing, they're they're gone. And then the offensive coordinator, Nathaniel Hackett, who left the Packers, was the coach of the Broncos for one year, got fired. And then the New York Jets brought him in because we want Aaron Rodgers to feel comfortable. And the, the Jets offense has been a train wreck. I'm not saying it's all his fault, but they've been an absolute and total train wreck. So you have this team that allowed itself to be general managed by Aaron Rodgers. And we're going to surround – we want Rodgers to be comfortable. We're not just going to pay him a boatload of money, but we want him to be comfortable. So we're going to bring in all these aging buddies of his, players that the Packers, with the possible exception of Lazard, didn't want anyways. We're going to surround them, and then, gee, what can happen? Well, what can happen is your season can go south in a big way. So it's not – it's not schadenfreude, you know, you feel guilty about that, you know, taking pain and taking joy and the pleasure of others. But, I mean, I just remember reading all this stuff before the season. Oh, this that the Packers are going to be struggling, etc. All right. Who would you rather be the Green Bay Packers right now or the New York Jets? I mean, just think about that. And you're, you know, your first two guesses don't count. I mean, seriously, you look at what the Packers have done and the Packers are going to get the Jets' second round draft pick, you know, next year on top of this. And I think, you know, look, maybe at the age of 40, Rodgers will come back and have a, a great season. But at least right now, this looks like one of the most one-sided, lopsided deals in the history of of the NFL, and I, I appreciate you couldn't necessarily anticipate that you know the the injuries were going to occur. But Rodgers didn't want to be with the Packers. The Packers didn't want to be have Rodgers anymore. They wanted to move on. He was a distraction. He was a problem. And along with him, the, the Jets ended up to make him happy. They had to again bring in eight or nine of his buddies, almost all of whom have not well, none of whom have worked out as hoped, and almost all of whom haven't worked out as expected. And now they're starting to cut them. Yep. If it's the Packers or the Jets, I think it's pretty clear which team got the best end of that deal. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. One of the things, there's many things that frustrated me about the ongoing presidential campaign. But one of the things is that I, I, a lot of the candidates just, I don't think are talking about issues. You know, you've got You've got Trump, for example, who's just obsessed with, oh, gee, the election was stolen and we're looking backward. I want candidates who are looking forward. And one of those issues, I don't know that there's a more significant forward-looking issue that affects all of us. Some people maybe directly right now, some people in the near future, some people in the far-off future. But the whole question of of Social Security and what's going to happen, let me back up for a second. I I think there's a lot of people that don't understand social security. What happens is when we work, we pay into social security and you have a social security account, but, and maybe everybody knows this, it's not, it's not like you have a bank account where, you know, the money that's taken out of your paycheck every two weeks or every, you know, twice a month or whatever, it's not like that money is segregated and goes into account that's sitting and waiting for you. What happens is the money that those of us who are working pay in, that is used to pay out claims for people who are already on Social Security. And so it's it, it operates like like that. And the expectation is all right, that you're going to have a workforce and you're going to have enough people that are going to be continuing to pay into Social Security moving forward that there's going to be enough in benefits for the people that are already collecting it and the people that will collect it soon. All right. Well, that's that's worked for a long time. But what's happening now? Well, first you have, you know, people who are are living longer. You know, and that's that's the issue number 1. So maybe you know, 20, 25, 30, 40 years ago, maybe the average life expectancy was 73 or 74. Now it's 80. So that means that people, whatever the numbers might be, so that people are going to be living longer, so they're going to be collecting Social Security longer, right? That's number one. Number two, uh, you millennials, starting with the millennials, and I mean to pick on the millennials, but they're, they're not having as many babies, say, as the baby boomers had. And so what that means is, is if it means fewer kids, it means fewer kids that grow up to go to work and pay into the Social Security system. So you've got this kind of whipsaw thing where you've got more and more people who are becoming eligible for Social Security and are drawing Social Security longer, and you've got fewer and fewer new people who are coming into the system. And the result of that is that the Social Security, the funds... And, and people throw around the term that it's going to go bankrupt. Well, it, it's it's not. I don't think it's ever going to go bankrupt. But the way the the estimates are is that unless something changes, um, the estimate is that Social Security will not have enough money in 19, by twenty thirty four, which is you know only ten years from now, won't have enough money to pay all of the scheduled benefits. Now, does that mean that people aren't going to get any Social Security? No, it doesn't. But the estimates are that at that time, the program will only be able to pay 80% of scheduled benefits. So it's not that all of a sudden, one month, people who depend on Social Security aren't going to get their Social Security checks. That That's not it. But it does mean that there will be, unless something happens in the next 10, 11 years, and maybe faster. I mean, this is all kind of a fluid situation. Unless there is something that happens... It means that people will not get all of their scheduled benefits, and I, I think it's kind of fair to say, for especially the people that depend on Social Security, if all of a sudden you're getting 20 percent less, that that's kind of a that, that's sort of a big deal. And I'd really like to hear the candidates, for example, talk about this. The problem is that politicians have learned that having a conversation about Social Security is a recipe for electoral disaster because the other side demonizes it. Oh, he's talking about, Jeff is talking about, you know, making changes to Social Security. He wants to throw Granny out of her house, put her on an iceberg and just on an ice float and just float her out into the middle of the Arctic Ocean. Well, no, it's not that, but it's this this reality that you've got a fiscal train wreck that's coming and you, you have to do something. Now, I'm old-fashioned in the fact that if you know that there's a problem, I would rather address the problem before it becomes a crisis. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's like, okay, we we know that this is going to be an issue. This is this train. It's coming head at us. But, you know, right now it's about two miles away. But uh, unless it changes course... It's going to slam directly into us. Well, my response would be, well, we got two choices. I guess we can wait till it's five minutes away from slamming into us and, and then try to do something in a panic. Or maybe alternatively, we try to develop a plan to figure out how to handle this. I vote for trying to avert the crisis and figure out, you know, what the alternative is or alternatives are moving forward. Now, there's different choices that are being thrown around. One is to increase the retirement age and say, okay, you know, when Social Security was first developed, the lifespan of people was this, and, and what we expect you to do is before you can start collecting Social Security, right now you can start at the age of 62, say let's bump it up to 64. Instead of the retirement age being 65, it, you make the retirement age 66 or, or whatever, whatever that might be. Delaying people from taking Social Security, that's one alternative. Another alternative, is, I guess, to means test, to say to people, it doesn't matter that you've paid in Social Security all your life. If we decide that you don't need it, by need it meaning we're going to look at your assets and you've got money in the retirement account, why should we be paying you Social Security if you have other sources of income? That's uh, and, and that's that's one of the things. The other thing that's floated around is, okay, maybe for people who are paying taxes right now, there's there at some point in time, the social security tax is capped after like 160 grand or whatever, you no longer pay social security tax. Another alternative would be for high income earners. What we would consider doing is saying, OK, we're, we're going to you're going to continue paying social security tax, you know, moving forward, maybe on up to two hundred thousand dollars of income or up to three hundred thousand dollars of income. You know, we're not going to cap it. All right. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. I I know there's going to be this presidential debate and some of the candidates have, the Republican candidates have kind of flirted around with the idea of, okay, well, you know, maybe we need to raise the retirement age or, or whatever. Joe Biden, I mean, his message is simply, I will never cut your Social Security. We will never touch it, which is is great, but it doesn't answer the, the problem. So, Would you like to hear the candidates talk about Social Security? And what what do you think the long-range solution is? Because I I firmly believe that doing nothing, well, I guess it's an alternative. I mean, it's an option. You can do nothing, but that's not good policy because if you do nothing, all right, if you've got a mess now, you do nothing, six or seven years from now, you're going to have a mess with hair on it. And I don't want to mess with hair on it. 855-616-1620, 855-616-1620, we discuss. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank uh, talk and text line, even though the text service isn't working at the moment. the I mean, look, I think, I think everything has to be on the table because I, I think, for example, for people who are on Social Security now, or people who are soon to be on Social Security, that there has been a promise the government has made to you, and, and you can't have the rug pulled out from under you. For people who are close to getting on there, it, it's the same sort of thing. Now, for people who are new to the system or have 30 years to go for retirement, I think it, it's, it's fair to say, look, you know – Nothing remains static and we need, to, we may need to make some changes, but I think you have to look at stuff. I think you have to, and I'm not a huge tax and spender. I'm not, but I think you need to look at raising the amount that people pay Social Security tax on. I think you need to bring in more revenue i think you need to not for the people that are on social security now or are very near it but i think you know you need to look at saying okay maybe we need to you know raise the age when you can take it not again for people who are 60 and are planning to retire and go on it at 62 but maybe for people who are in their 30s you need to change the the rules you need to have everything on the table i i believe because the idea that you know Ten years from now, you might be looking at a 20 percent cut in benefits for people, I think is just unsustainable and unrealistic. Okay, let's start with Phil and Stephen's point. Hi, Phil.
4: Well, thanks for the call here. You know, when years ago they rated Social Security, they're like for SSI, people with alcohol and drug problems and things like that. And, And I think it kind of got us into a dilemma that we're in now and furthermore the other issue is social security and I thought education system for this is a supplement to what you should have had saved while you are working during the years it's not a government golden goose it's a supplement to what you should have had saved and earned
2: well, yeah, but that – I mean, I guess so. But I guess how does that what, – what do you do with the situation that, you know, people are relying on those those benefits or have been promised those benefits and we might not have enough money to pay them? I mean, can we allow that to happen?
4: Well, I don't know. I'll be in that boat probably come February and I'm going to turn 65, but I'm still planning on working yet. So yeah. I guess as long as my health holds out, you know, I don't really look forward to for retirement because I don't know.
2: All right. Well, well, good enough. I, Th- I mean, thanks for the call. I mean, I guess I look, I, I mean, it, it's more just, I mean, yeah, and I understand, I mean, I understand social security has changed over, over the years, and we, we talked about that just a few minutes ago. I mean, the, the, the lifespan of people have increased. People are living longer. You, you've got fewer young people that are coming into the workforce. That's a product of just, you know, birth rates and things like that. So you, you have to, you have to make changes. But for the people that are on or like you feel are near social security, I don't, uh, near eligibility, I don't think I don't think you can pull the rug out on any of those people, but at the same time, it's also foolish not to recognize that what you're doing isn't sustainable. You need to say, okay, there there needs to be some changes. Now, I would be the first one to I I would never suggest that. Okay, you got somebody that you know retired or scheduled to retire at the age of 65. Maybe they turn 65 next year, and we suddenly come in and say, no, we're going to move the retirement age to 67. No, because you you've been planning. I, I get that. On the other hand, if you've got somebody who's 38 years old saying, all right, just so you understand, we want to make sure Social Security in some way, shape or form is available for you when you become eligible. But you need to understand now we're going to up that from 30 from, you know, from 65 to 67 or or whatever. Everything needs to be on the table, I guess, is is my point. Let's talk to Tim and Sean O. Tim, you're on WTMJ.
1: Yeah. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I I totally think that they should talk about in debate. I am a firm believer that hey, if you work, you know, and you pay into the system, you should you know get that money back you put into the system. However, we live in a welfare state, and I think that a lot of politicians are scared to touch social security because they know it's going to alienate the type of people. That you know maybe don't want to work as hard feel that there's an expectation that they should get something back um, mm-hmm. those types of people so Republican Democrats they're not going to touch Social Security in a public forum until they absolutely have to
2: which, which yeah no which 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 is is no way to run a railroad you know I mean yeah so so you wait until and I guess that's my that's my larger point too okay so it's 2023. But let's say these numbers that I'm looking at are correct, and, and it's, you know, 2034, so it's 10 years from now, and there's not enough money coming in. It's not bankrupt, but, you know, you're looking at massive cuts I mean, I don't know about you, I don't want this dealt with, I don't think it's responsible to say, hey, you know, six months from now, you might end up getting, you know, 20% less. Why? It's just so frustrating that we can't talk about it and have a realistic conversation about it now without recognizing that if you do that and you try to be responsible, you're going to get demonized in some 30-second political ad next November.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I've been working since I'm 16, putting into the system. Hey, I'm looking forward to retirement, but uh, yeah. you never know what happens. I, I don't retire for another, you know, 15 years.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, no, no right. Th- thanks for calling, Tim. And I guess my my point is, for for guys like you, we have to do everything we can to to make sure that that okay, if you're 50, to make sure or whatever, to make sure that that Social Security is there for you. Now, it might mean that we, we tweak stuff around the edges. It might mean that, OK, you're going to have to work an extra year before you're eligible for all your benefits. Or maybe we, we look at saying, OK, well, maybe 62 is too young to start. Maybe we have to say 63 or, or whatever. Um, I, we, but we got to be talking about this. Right now, and as far as far as like I say, as far as people who are near this now or on Social Security now, I mean, I think that has to be off the table. I mean, you, I mean, I think that's just that that's just the reality. You have relied on that, but that doesn't mean that we can't have or we shouldn't be able to have this discussion. Let's talk to Sam and McHenry. Hi, Sam, you're on WTMJ.
5: Hey, how you doing there, Jeff? Happy good. retirement, Thank and you. <laughs> hopefully you have good health.
2: Thank you very much. I'm hoping the same thing. I appreciate it. Thank you.
5: Well, you've done a great job. So, anyway, uh, you made a comment. We got to get it on the table. And I've been saying that for years. I'll start with foreign aid. I'll chop that up so fast. All these green energy projects. There is so much. You got illegal aliens coming in. Now we're, we're having to take care of them. Uh, the federal government is trying to reimburse states for some of that. Illinois is a prime example. I mean, you can just go right down the line. There is so much money we are spending. Uh, government worker pensions. Some of these pensions are just out of this world. That you got to have some kind of parity here. If you got a middle class government worker, middle class private sector, we got to have some kind of parity here. If you're ever going to make this work, so there is a lot you could get on the table. Foreign aid would be the first thing I would chop. Well, but the problem is in Washington is everybody's got their little interest, their little pot of gold. Nobody wants to touch it, so that's why you're having this problem right now. But if you'd start with at least find one or two things like you always talk about that everybody could agree on, that's where you start with the whole mess to get the ball rolling.
2: Right. And then go from there, Sam. Thanks for calling again. I mean, these are, I I mean, these are, I think everything has to be on, on the table and we have to be able to have this conversation and have to be able to recognize that we're, we're trying to do this. We're trying to do this stuff. Now, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I my ideas were trying to work within the framework of Social Security as it exists now and, and tinker around the edges and see what you can do. You're talking about the bigger picture about diverting spending and things like that. And, and maybe I, I just, I, I don't know that you're going to, I don't have any. I mean, we, we can't get politicians to sit there and agree that, you know, we'll, we'll raise the retirement age a, a year. People are afraid to do that because they're afraid they're going to see those 30-second ads. So I'm not sure that we could ever get people to agree to some of these big-picture things about how we're going to cut this spending and we're going to put it into Social Security. My only point is we've got to have this conversation, and that is what leadership is all about. And when I watch these debates or I listen to the candidates talk, that, that's the type of stuff that I want to hear. I want to hear people's vision for the future. I don't want to hear about, you know, grievances. I don't want to hear about, oh, this happened two years ago or this happened four years ago. I, I want to I hear about what your idea is to make my life better and to make, you know, your kid's life better or your grandkids' life better. That, that's what I, I want to hear. Those are the messages that I think resound You know, all right. And I I don't want to hear, you know, like, for example, from the Biden camp that, oh, things are just absolutely great. Why are people upset? Well, that's not true either. But I I want to hear a forward looking vision, which, again, kind of gets me back to one of the things that I admit I beat on all the time, which is I cannot believe that the leading Republican candidate is 77 years old. Forget all Trump's other problems. You know, I mean, just just look at the age. And Biden's, what, 81. I mean, it's just it is just crazy. That these are the, the choices that if you believe the polls, and again, I'm on record, and I'll, I'll be around somewhere, so you can always say I told you so, but I am still on record as saying I, I think, I don't believe either Biden or Trump is going to be the nominees for either one of the parties. And I, again, I understand people roll their eyes when I say that, but I'm going to stand by that until I am proven wrong. And for the good of the country, I think many of you should hope that I am right. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. So I, I was out the other day and, and somebody came up to me and said, Jeff, I, I heard you talking about this, this road that that Shorewood has built and the way they've got it designed. And I heard you talking about that. And I was listening to you and I, I thought you you were making it up. And I said, no, I, I, no, I wasn't. I said, no, no, I, I know that because I went out and I drove it and I just couldn't believe that any community anywhere in the country would think that this is a a good idea. And then that started the conversation. I I bring this up because the the, the story, today's TMJ4 had this, I think they ran it last night. Edgewood Avenue neighbors still hesitant about advisory bike lanes hope for a safer street. The new advisory bike lanes along Edgewood Avenue in Milwaukee and Shorewood continue to draw mixed reactions now that the construction is completed. Forget mixed reactions. Here is the deal. If if a flying saucer from Mars landed on Edgewood Avenue between Oakland and between Lake Drive in Shorewood, it lands on somebody's front lawn. It looks out, and you have the Martians that come out of the flying saucer, and they look at the way this road is designed. The Martians would go back into the flying saucer and leave, convinced that there is no intelligent life on Earth. It's just that's how this would work out. For, for if you haven't been following this story, some of I, I, the, the village of Shorewood thought it was a good idea. So Edgewood is it's a, about a, it's about a mile long, actually, you know, eight tenths of a mile long, and it's an east west street that runs between Lake Drive and it runs between Oakland Avenue, two main north south thoroughfares in, on the east side of Milwaukee. So what they have done. Now, normally normally on, on a roadway, you've got a center line and cars going westbound will be on one side of the center line and cars going eastbound will be on the other side of the center line, right? That's how it kind of works. And maybe you've got a bike lane that's tied in there. All right, this is, this is how it works in a rational world. Well, in Shorewood, what they've done is they do these, <laughs> this ABL sort of thing, an advisory bike lane. So what happens is, all right, let's just, moving from the curb, there's a lane where you can park your car. Then there's a bike lane. Then there is a center lane. Then there's another bike lane. Then there's a lane where you can park your car. Yes, you, you heard me correctly. When you turn onto Edgewood Avenue, you are turning directly into a car coming the other way. So if I am heading south on Oakland, I want to make a left turn to go over to Lake Drive, I turn, and there will be, so I'm going to head east. If there's a car on Edgewood coming west, it is in the center lane of traffic. We are playing chicken. All right. The response that the people in Shorewood have, the the brainiacs who came up with this, is to turn that road into a giant game of Frogger, you know, the old video game, where, all right, so I have turned onto the street. Somebody is coming directly at me. I am supposed to swerve. Well, they don't say you're supposed to swerve. They're supposed to, You're supposed to check the bike lane to see if there happens to be a bicyclist there and then swerve into the lane so you don't have a head-on crash with the car coming the other way, and they are supposed to do the same thing. And then once you've passed in the advisory bike lane, then you can swing back and you can continue to drive into head-on traffic. I swear, you. I am not making this up. You could... I mean, you know, my, my whole theory is I figure somebody must have been high when they came up with this idea. But it's so interesting to me because nobody's willing to come forward and say this is the craziest thing in the world. And what's going to happen is you're going to have a bicyclist that's going to be hit and killed because somebody, and this is right by UWM, by the way, so you got a lot of pedestrians, you got a lot of bicyclists and things like that, it's going to be 630 at night. There's going to be ice or snow on the roadways. Somebody's going to make that turn. They're going to see headlights coming directly at them. They are going to freak out because they think they have turned the wrong way on a one-way street. They're going to swerve to get out of the way, and they're going to hit somebody. That That is inevitable. There have already, I'm told, been accidents in, in this area or lots of near misses. It's just the craziest damn thing that you can imagine, and yet this is what they're doing in Shorewood. And, Yes, I, I know I've talked about this once or twice. Probably talk about it once or twice more before the before the show ends and I leave, because there's there's good ideas, there's bad ideas, there's smart ideas, there's dumb ideas, and then there's the advisory bike lane idea, which is in a whole category all by itself. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. <music> Is of course, one of our other goodbye songs, one of my favorite songs. I think you can make an argument that I don't know if it's Bob Dylan's best song, but it's one of his five best songs. I would think um, that, of course, was for the soundtrack of uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Uh, I didn't, I didn't want the program to end without mentioning the story, and it's just, it's, it's one of these incredibly tragic and very, very bizarre stories. Um, Milwaukee police officer James Jimmy Novak um grave condition following a, a traffic crash um that happened Sunday night in, in Oak Creek. And uh, at about ten thirty at night, what happened is uh the vehicle that and he was off duty. The off the, the officer Novak um was driving and there was a a semi that was driving. They were both going the same way. And apparently what happens is the semi goes to make a U turn and uh Novak's vehicle smashes into the, the the back the, the the rear side of the, the semi, and I, I don't I haven't seen the accident reconstructions and stuff, but I have seen the aftermath, and it's it's really horrific. And um, Officer Novak in grave condition, and um, originally they reported he passed away. At least uh, that doesn't appear to be the case right now, but they, they don't expect him to survive. It's just this, this absolutely horrible story on all these different levels. But the really the really <clears throat> weird thing about this is that. Um, Officer Novak was the partner of officer Peter Jerving who was shot and killed while attempting to apprehend a robbery suspect on the south side in February this year. So you have this situation where in in the space of in the space of 10-11 uh, months you have you know two police officers who who were partners you know, one who is killed in the line of duty, and the other who then dies in this what I think is going to be sort of a, a freak sort of traffic a- accident. And the, the people in the semi, I mean, they stopped on the scene. I, I I don't know, you know, who's responsible for this stuff. It really doesn't matter. All you know is you have the, this um, off-duty officer who's dead, but his partner, you know, ended up being killed in the line of duty months earlier. I mean, it's just. What, what an incredible tragedy, no matter how you cut it. And I think all our um, thoughts and prayers go out to Officer Novak's family in this particular time. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this on, uh, on Wednesday show. All right, let me take a quick break. When we come back, Greg Matzik, Amy Taylor, Wisconsin's Afternoon News.